The following audio presentation is from Parkwood Baptist Church. The purpose of Parkwood Baptist Church is to glorify God by laboring together for the growth of all believers while going with the gospel to all peoples. More information about Parkwood Baptist Church is available at parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org. Good morning and welcome. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is where I invite you to turn in your Bible page 955 in a chair Bible underneath a chair close to you. While you're finding your place, invite the ushers, if you will, make your way to the front and to your assigned spots. If you're a member of the church, will you please identify yourself as they hand you one of these cards like in my hand? So if you quickly would let them know who you are. Uh, This is for our deacon and elder selection. Uh, We're selecting uh, voting concerning a new elder we, we vote individually for chairman of deacons, and we elect our deacons as a slate. If there is an individual on here that you wish not to serve as a deacon, you can strike through the name so that you can still vote yes for that if you are so inclined. Also remind you that we have a members meeting today at four o'clock to deal with matters uh, about the lobby so that we can take the next steps forward and get started uh, toward the, the, the building of the lobby. So hopefully you'll be here at four. It should be a very brief meeting and time together. Now, if you don't get one of these ballots, you can stop by the info desk on the way out and uh, take care of, of that as you leave. Now, I'm about to preach a very direct and applicable sermon on 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you have not read it in advance, um, you are probably, uh, if you're not familiar that the Bible is this frank and direct, on these matters, you're probably in for somewhat of a surprise. But please know that in every way and attempt, I will seek to be respectful and appropriate in this discussion. And as this discussion moves from this place to your growth groups, you need to have direct and applicable discussions in your growth groups, but you must remain respectful and appropriate. And can I just appeal to the men for a moment? This is not a place to joke. So when you get into growth group, don't don't be joking about your relationship with your wife and embarrass her. On the flip side, wives, do not speak ill of your husband in front of others. This needs to be a respectful and appropriate manner in which we speak to each other concerning these things. If children are present, Uh, I've had several parents come to me afterward. They were relieved, yet uncomfortable. So I'm just telling you, both of those things are going to happen as I move through this sermon. But I believe this in the core of my being. Your children, young people, they need to hear this because the culture is dictating what they believe about these things. The church has got to get ahead of the curve. We've got to deal with these matters uh, as the, the body of Christ. So let me pray for us. And I'm just going to launch right into 1 Corinthians 7 for the sake of time. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that your word speaks directly to the sexual relationship between a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage. Thank you that you are direct with us. Thank you that you are helpful with us. Lord, there are so many applications through the power of the Holy Spirit that you're going to make in hearts and lives today. So I pray for the struggling. I pray for those who are not yet believers. 
I pray for those, Lord, who are angry and embittered. I pray for those that are living and experiencing a healthy marriage. I pray for the single, the widow, and the widower. To all involved who are gathered, including our children, speak now. Your word is sharper than a two-edged sword. Use it, we pray, in Christ's name. Amen. Not too many months ago, I performed a wedding, and during the rehearsal, an elderly couple made their way down the aisle holding hands. Now, it became pretty obvious that part of the reason they were holding hands is they needed each other to stay stable as they moved toward the front. They sat down right in front of me. We continued on with the wedding rehearsal, and I noticed as the things I would talk and share and just in how they were treating each other, that they held hands the entire time I was talking. I was intrigued. As soon as I finished, I went straight to them. I said, how long have you been married? And she said, young man, we've only been married 70 years. (laughs) 70 years of marriage. I said, well, let me just get straight to it. I noticed you were holding hands the whole time you were sitting here. Is this typical? She said, oh, yes, he cherishes me. We talked some more, and I said, all right, as I walk away from here and as a pastor who will speak into other lives, tell me, how would you stay married for 70 years and love each other the way you do? And he hadn't said much. And with a smile on his face, he said, young man, we both follow Jesus. Well, he just summed up my sermon. They were a living picture of what we want to talk about today. Here's our main idea. Marriage involves a lifelong commitment for the sake of sexual purity and gospel witness. Now, let's put ourselves in context and remind ourselves of what's been going on in the letter of 1 Corinthians. Chapter 5 runs head-on into sexual immorality. Paul says to them, it's amazing that there's, there's sexual immorality reported among you. In chapter 6, he becomes emphatic, and he says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Those who practice these things are giving evidence that they're not believers. Then he says, verse 11, such were some of you. This is how you used to be described But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. Now go to the end of the chapter. As a result, flee sexual immorality. Recognize your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And here is your goal. Glorify God in your body. Now there's multiple applications to that, but the immediate context is As far as your sexuality, glorify God in your body. Now he's going to define how you do that in the context of the married relationship. Now, before we get there, let's go over to Mark chapter 10 
and lay down a couple of foundational truths from Jesus that Paul alludes to. He doesn't quote directly, but he alludes to these things in this text. From the beginning of creation. So this is the way God created the world to be. God made them male and female. Your gender matters. God either made you a man or a woman. That maleness and femaleness is tied to your sexuality. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, or the old translations, cleave unto his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one flesh. Now the Bible is speaking to the one flesh physical union between a man and a woman. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So there's more than the physical relationship. There is a spiritual dimension to this that God has put two people together and we are not to separate them. So let's just review very quickly. We're male and female. We have to have a one flesh union in the context of marriage. This is a profound union that includes the sexual relationship. And this is to be a lifelong commitment and covenant that is not to be severed. Now, with that in our minds, because Paul was assuming this was in their minds. We come to 1 Corinthians 7. And the first thing we want to see is that marriage involves a lifelong commitment for the sake of sexual purity. To to keep yourself sexually pure so you can glorify God in your body, God gives you marriage. Now concerning the matters, verse 1, about which I wrote to you, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So they wrote a letter to Paul. Get this in your head. They sent a letter to Paul, and here's the conclusion some of the hyper-spiritual people at Corinth came to. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. (laughs) This is so 21st century Christian. It's the two extremes. You come to a church and you got to say with Paul, how in the world is there sexual immorality among you? How can this be? And then you got the hyper-spiritual among you. All sex is bad. Don't talk about it. Some of you are like, why is he preaching this sermon? Why does he keep using the word? Use a different word. <laughs> so they had arrived at this mentality that sex was wrong. So if you're really going to be spiritual, then don't have sexual relations. Paul says, time out. Now, ultimately what he's arguing is, if you don't follow this teaching, you likely are going to find yourself in sexual immorality. Or let me say it positively. This is how you remain sexually pure. But because of temptation to sexual immorality, verse 2, each man should have, and this is an explicit word that means the sexual relationship, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Now the Bible is not making an argument that the only reason for marriage is to avoid sexual immorality. We'll get to some texts that will clear that up. But the Bible is making a few clear admissions and bringing things to the surface. We are sexual beings that are male and female, husband and wife. 
and that sex within marriage is not sexual immorality. Number two, we are designed for a one flesh union. Notice, each man should have his what? Own wife. Each woman must have her own husband. This is an exclusive one flesh union between two people. Now it becomes even more specific. Verse 3. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now, this is not a new idea. In the Song of Solomon, repeated three times, chapters 2, 3, and 7, is this phrase, I am my beloved's and he is mine. This exclusive relationship with each other. Now, when we look at verses 3 and 4, what are some things that rise to the surface that become crystal clear? Now, I'm just going to be obvious here. Number one, Husbands have sexual needs. Number two, wives have sexual needs. Now, I'm just going to be straight here. If this ever gets discussed in a Christian context, the man gets focused on. Notice the clear, equal nature in which Paul deals with this subject. He does not focus on the man. He equally talks about the man and the woman. This is a quote. In the evangelical church, it often seems to see their sexual relationship as providing for little more than procreation and for the control of mostly male sexual urges. The passage speaks of so much more. It reminds those who refuse to acknowledge that women also have sexual desires that they need to be able to satisfy with their God-given partner in marriage. Now with that in our minds, we go a step further in the emphatic language. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. First century, we went, that's exactly right. That woman's supposed to do what that man wants. And then the Bible makes an incredible statement. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. On my hand is a ring. I tried to take it off in the last service. I couldn't get it off. That's a good thing. This says, I belong to somebody else. She's wearing one that's similar. And it says that she belongs to somebody else. When you marry, you grant authority of your body to your spouse. That does not mean let me very, be very careful and very direct. That does not mean that sex is a means of manipulation. In fact, this is what Paul is running up against. Sex is not to be used 
for one-sided pleasure. It does not mean that a man can make his wife or vice versa do something they object to. And this is where the sermon's going to get really uncomfortable for a moment. But I'm going to go to the counseling room with me and a couple, and this has happened dozens of times now, to where the effect of pornography has now played into the marriage relationship to where they're trying to act things out they have seen. Now, young people, hear me. You have no idea what you're doing to yourself. You have no idea what you're doing to your marriage. No marriage is a movie. God designed and intended for you and your spouse over a period of a lifetime to work out your sexual relationship in a beautiful, God-glorifying way. He never intended for you to bring porn into the marriage bed. Husbands, and now I must say wives, it's not about acting out. It's about giving of yourself to each other. There's a duty here, but this duty is not the lack of love or the lack of sexual desire is an awareness in the one flesh union that you have freely given yourself away. In a reciprocal manner. This is a delicate and beautiful thing. It's God's design. It's what God desires. So let me just summarize this part of the sermon. Husbands and wives are to have a normal, regular, satisfying sexual relationship. This is God's will. You say, I I don't know about that. I mean, I've kind of heard this is bad, you know. Some of you are going to be shocked this is in your Bible. Turn to Proverbs 5. Now, while you're turning over there, this will further get your attention. This is Solomon teaching his unmarried son what to plan for. So in other words, this wasn't written to a married person. This was written to a single man to help prepare him for what was ahead. Proverbs 5, 15. This is... This is literature at its best, okay? The single people, unmarried people, or the unmarried people, the people who have never been married, I get get this right, I'm stumbling on my words here. You're going to read this and go, you know, young people, what is this talking about? All the married people know, so here we go. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, Streams of water in the streets. Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. So men, listen to me carefully. Satisfy yourself. That's another way to translate this. Satisfy yourself in the wife of your youth. In a real woman. A real physical 
woman, not an image. Be intoxicated with her. With her. For the rest of your life. This is God's design. Now, as a result of this, he makes a very clear statement. Do not deprive one another. (laughs) Do you need any commentary on that? Okay. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So two simple things here. To, To... separate, or not, it's the wrong word, to pause for a period of time in the sexual relationship in a marriage must be with mutual consent, that's what he's teaching here, and for a brief period of time. Mutual consent, brief period of time. He is not commanding that you have to stop for a period of time to pray. He's saying you can. It's permission, not a requirement. The key term is Do not deprive one another. Now, the text briefly leaves the married and addresses the single. Now, this is appropriate. He's writing to an entire church, and the single person, the unmarried person, is going, what about me? I have needs. Okay, so he's going to address you. Now, as a commit concession, not a command. I say this. I wish that all were as myself, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one another. Now, we're going to go into this in depth. In two weeks, I'm going to preach an entire sermon on singleness. I doubt many of you have ever heard one. Here's what Paul's saying, that it is a gift from God, a spiritual gift from God to have lifelong singleness, to be celibate your entire life. And Paul says, I wish all of you were like he is. He's a single man. You say, well, what if that's not my gift? Okay, he's got an answer to you. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should what? Marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So, In the first service, 8 o'clock, it's mainly people, retired and older, and I'm not going to do it in this service, but I said, how many of you got married before you were 21? Over half the hands in the room went up. I said, all right, how many of you, this verse influenced getting married? Whoop! Hands went back up. But here's what's happened. Here's what's happened. And listen closely. I'm preaching to mamas and daddies and grandparents now. Here's what we've done. We've elevated financial security above eternal security. We've said to our young people, we'd rather you be sexually immoral and put your soul at risk than put your financial life in in peril and go ahead and get married. I graduated on Sunday. I got married on Saturday. (laughs) Celeste wasn't through with school. This verse may or may have had something to do with it. I'll go back over it, boys. Walk with Jesus. 
get a job, I don't mean, I didn't say be financially secure. I ain't paying for no boy to marry my daughter. Get a job, get married. As quickly as possible in those three things. Russell Moore was preaching on this text. He is the president of the ERLC. When he finished, a very professional woman charged to him with her adult son and a female and her husband who was sheepishly following behind her. She walked straight up to Dr. Moore and said, I cannot believe that you said that this, this, my son should get married. You need to understand, he is in graduate school. He does not own his own home yet. And he, he still has time. He's got things he's got to do. And she's a senior in college. And, and, and she's not ready to get married. They're not, they're not prepared for this. And how dare you insinuate that they ought to get married? You need to know they've been dating since the ninth grade. Russell saw his end. He turned his attention away from her to the young couple and he said, wow, isn't that a wonderful testimony that the two of you have been dating since the ninth grade and you have remained sexually pure for 12 years? You have, haven't you? Russell said it was stark silence for a few minutes is everyone awkwardly stared at each other. (laughs) And finally, Mommy Dearest said, let's go! (laughs) Folks, let's just be honest. How how many of you have forgotten what it was like to be 21 and be in love? We've got to change our mentality as Christians as we see this and help raise our young people to move as quickly toward marriage as when is necessary. Write me letters and call me. We'll have fun. I'm moving on. Let's summarize where we are at this point. If you're burning with passion, either abstain and get out or get married. Here's what's funny. (laughs) I forgot about this. A couple came up to me. This was over 20 years ago. They said, Jeff, you walked up and said to us, either get married or break up. I forgot. They're married. They've been married over 20 years now. Praise the Lord. If you're burning with passion, either get out of it or get married. Second, marriage is the context for passion. Now I have a practical question. What happens if you lose the passion in your marriage? Nobody's ever done that. I heard the subtle chuckle. Here's, where, here's how you lose the passage, and I'll stand behind this. I'll come back to it and illustrate it at the end of the sermon. Here's how you lose your passion in marriage. When you disobey the basic principles of Scripture of how you're to be a husband and how you're to be a wife. When you disobey those things, passion's gone. God has designed you in such a way as to how you keep that in the context of your marriage. Here's what you must not do. Verse 10 is on the tail of verse 9. To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. If she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Now I'm not arguing hermeneutically that this is exactly what Paul means. But it is interesting that it follows verse 9. There is a base principle here that we should not divorce that we must stay committed to the marriage. 
But I have found that one of the leading reasons that people, even within the church, will give for, for, for separating, for divorcing, is because they've lost their love or their passion. The Bible gives this charge referring to Jesus that we should not separate. The wife should not separate from her husband. The husband divorces his wife. Now, do you see we've been interchanging back and forth? In the Greek, the words separate and divorce mean the same thing. In our culture, separate is that period before divorce. That is not what it means. They both mean the same thing, to divide, to leave. Actually, divorce means leave and separate means divide. In Matthew 5, 32, Jesus said, I say this, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality. So if you're two believers and you're married and one of this, your spouse commits sexual immorality among you, that that's grounds for divorce, that's in other places. But he's saying, if you divorce your wife, except the exception clause, if you divorce, you make her commit adultery and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So here's what he's saying. You've broken the one flesh union, which still exists. You've just legally broken it. If you go and marry again, you're committing adultery. Now that's profound, profound things to be said here. Now, the person who has been divorced for the grounds of sexual immorality, that's an exception clause. And I can say more about that if you have questions. Here's the main point. Divorce is never the goal which carries us into our second major point, that marriage involves a lifelong commitment for the sake of gospel witness. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord. So he's leaving the teaching of Jesus. Now he's offering a new teaching. This is still authoritative. Paul is inspired by the Spirit of God to teach. This doesn't mean it's optional. That if any brother has a wife who's an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Now here's what happened. Unbelieving community, the gospel comes, people began to believe. So two people were married, the wife believes, the husband doesn't, or vice versa. The husband believes and the wife doesn't. So here was the conclusion they came to. We're, I'm now unholy because I'm married to a non-believer. I need to get out of this. Paul says, wrong. Wrong. That is not what you're to do. Verse 14, the unbelieving husband is made holy because of the wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. This does not mean that they're a Christian. He addresses this in verse 16, that the unbeliever needs to be saved. What he means is that the unbelieving spouse is profoundly spiritually affected by the believing spouse. That instead of the non-believer corrupting the marriage, the believer makes the marriage holy. And the effect goes down to their kids. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Now, I have to take a sidebar for a second because of what's happened in modern Christendom and, and some unwise counsel of pastors. If there's any woman in this room, either if your husband claims to be a Christian or he's a non-Christian, this does not mean you stay in an abusive relationship. Physical abuse is illegal. It is against the law. That individual needs to be reported and dealt with. So this is not a means to stay in an abusive relationship. You say, well, if my husband's abusive, does that mean I divorce him? I didn't say that either. But you need to get out of the house. And if you need help, we will help you immediately. 
Now, I'm telling you, you come to us and tell us you're in an abusive situation. We're going to deal with it emphatically and immediately. We're not going to pretend you didn't tell us. That is an illegal act, and it should not be tolerated. Back to the sermon. What if the unbelieving spouse seeks a divorce? If the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. The start, God has, God has called you to peace. That means don't you subtly try to destroy the marriage. God's called you to live at peace with this non-believer. But if they decide, because you're now a Christian, that they want to be divorced with you, from you, then you let it be. And he says you're not enslaved. That means you are free to move on with your life and you're free to move back toward marriage. But here's the ultimate goal. Do you, for how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Now, I have a reference to 1 Peter 3 there. I'll let you look it up on your own, but let me tell you a story. In my first church and place I served, a woman came into our church. Um, her name was Debbie. She had two daughters. Um, you could tell that Debbie carried a lot of weight. And I didn't know who she was uh, when, when they came into the church. Uh, but it soon came out and that her husband was not a believer. And then I figured out I knew who he was. He was a very common guy around our community, a guy who's well-liked, loves to ride a motorcycle, just a good old boy. He works hard. He provides for his family. But it's commonly known Jimmy's not a Christian. Every time an offer was, was placed, uh, Debbie would pray for her husband. The daughters would pray for their dad. And uh, when I left uh, Hickory and moved here, uh, things were still the same. Two years ago, it was my last Sunday before I was supposed to take a sabbatical and be out for three months. I'm out in the lobby, and Debbie and Jimmy walk up to me together. <laughs> well, first, they drove from Hickory to be here, and I said, what are you guys doing here? And Jimmy spoke up. He said, we knew this was your last Sunday before you go on sabbatical, and we've been listening to you preach, and we just wanted to come. And he said, I wanted to let you know that I have come to faith. I have come, become a Christian. And without getting into the details of the conversation, I knew what he was going to say before he said it. When I asked him why, he pointed to Debbie. Decades of praying and living her faith in front of this man had a profound impact on his life. And not only was Jimmy a new person, the weight had lifted off of Debbie and the joy was there. So here's my question to all of you. Am I pursuing my marriage for the sake of sexual purity and gospel witness? Now, when I say that personally, I'm primarily talking to the person who's married to a non-believer. Are you pursuing your marriage for the sake of sexual purity and for the sake of gospel witness? To the married believers in the room, I ask it this way. Are we pursuing our marriage for the sake of sexual purity and gospel witness? Let's read Ephesians chapter 5, 22 to 32 together. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, as in himself its Savior. 
Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit and everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water and with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Look at this just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So let's go into the premarital counseling session for a moment. Or let's stand at a wedding. If you've ever been to one, I'm going to say this. You know what the greatest need of every man in this room is? To be respected. You can argue with me that some other need you have. Dude, at the end of the day, your greatest need is to be respected. You know what the greatest need of a woman is? To be nourished and cherished. And here's what God's done for both of you. He's told you how to get there. Ladies, follow Jesus, who submitted to the Father. Men, follow Jesus who nourishes and cherishes his church. When I told you earlier, the passions left your marriage because you're disobeying and unrepentant, it's right here. I had a couple after the last service try to argue with me about this. It took me about 30 seconds to pin them both down as to where they were. It comes down to these two issues. Because here's what happens. The chicken or the egg starts first. Either the woman disrespects the husband and he stops nourishing and cherishing or he stops nourishing and cherishing and she starts to disrespect him because he's not. Then you've got a toxic environment and the sexual relationship. Whew. So what do you got to do? You ready? How'd you have so much passion right before you got married? Was it because you were 21? No. It's because you worked at wooing. Oh, you were so sweet and respectful to him. And he wrote you letters and told you how pretty you was. Then he conquered you. He got married. I don't need to do that anymore. Now you see how he really is. You ain't respecting him no more. Listen to me. Those two things you must do. You say, well, he doesn't deserve it. Did you deserve Jesus? Any of you? I don't deserve anything that Celeste Long has done and does for me. Nothing. I admit it. But thank God that she follows Christ and does what God has commanded her to do. I won't speak for myself. I pray that it is true. That's how you proceed in marriage. My grandfather was on his deathbed. They told him and the family that the end was imminent. His children were gathered around him and they brought in my grandmother. I'm told he reached up his hand and he took her hand. He said... 
Edna, you're the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. I love you. We watched my grandfather nourish and cherish my grandma. And they lived a life of marriage in the fullest sense until the very end of his own subtle admission in an appropriate way. Over 50 years. That's what God's called you to. So I pray something like this at every marriage, and I want to pray for you. That if you make it into your 90s, that you're going to teeter in to the wedding of your grandchildren, holding hands and still dearly in love. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for the married among us, many of whom need to repent of wrong attitudes and wrong practices and pursue and follow you today. Do a work. May none of us rest in thinking we've accomplished this thing. I pray for the unmarried among us, particularly those who need to get married, that they will act and act quickly. I pray for those among us, Lord, who have lost a spouse. Either they've left them or they've passed on. Heal the brokenness in their heart right now. I pray for the unmarried among us who are confused as to whether they should remain single or married. Grant them wisdom and provision. Lord, may we reflect you. May we be a gospel witness unto you in every area of our lives, particularly in our marriage. And may you use our marriages for the sake of sexual purity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Let's stand together. Thanks for listening to this audio presentation from Parkwood Baptist Church, located in Gastonia, North Carolina. Please feel free to share this message with others. For more information about Parkwood Baptist Church, visit parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org.